Let's open up together to the book of Esther. We're in chapter 9 this morning. It's our penultimate study through the book, second to last. We have one more. We're going to study through verse 19 today, and then we'll take next week, Lord willing, we'll take the rest of the chapter in through chapter 10 and conclude our time together in the book. And I tell you, the lessons that we've been studying and some of the main themes that have kind of been woven through and highlighted in the book of Esther have been such a source of strength for me throughout our studies, but especially this week. You know, I I look at some of the uh, lessons that we find in the book, and one of the major themes and one of the inescapable lessons is that God is in control. He is absolutely in control, even when things look bad in the world around us. God is absolutely in control, and often we can get caught up in the news, we can get caught up in what's uh, election results, and we say, boy, I'm just absolutely grieved by what I see, and we're reminded that God is still in control, and even when it looks like man is being effective in pushing God off the throne, God is above it all and sovereign over all of it. And because God is holy, wise, and good, he's overruling all things for good. He's taking the brokenness that we see in this world, the wickedness that we see in this world, and he's actually turning it for his glory and for our good. And I'm so encouraged by that as we study through Esther together. And we see that continuing to unfold in our chapter here this morning. As you just kind of scan back over Esther, two weeks ago we saw that the personal threat against Mordecai was resolved. Uh, We saw that Haman's plot to attack him personally was exposed, and Haman was killed on the very gallows that he had met for Mordecai. And so we saw that personal threat resolved two weeks ago. And then last week in chapter 8, we saw God overpowering the plans of Haman, those plans against the people of Israel through the declaration of a second decree that went out. Now, the first decree we saw in the book uh, condemned the Jews to death. It marked them out for annihilation and destruction, where the second decree that we studied last week gave them hope and life. And the stage was set last week for this incredible deliverance that we'll see unfold here in chapter 9. In chapter 9, we see that deliverance played out for us. We see the deliverance that God had in mind from before the world began played out there on the page. And he was and is working all things together for the good of his people, overpowering the, the plans of the evil one. And he does this in our lives too. And so with that in mind, let's read through uh, chapter 9 verses 1 through 19 and see how this plays out for us. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, in the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them. Because fear of them fell upon all people, and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. 
In Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, these 10 guys, the sons of Haman, of Hamadatha, I'm not even going to try. I, I practiced beforehand. And in my office, is like, that's just silly. Um, so you can read them. And if you're an ancient Persian scholar, come on up. So these ten sons of Haman the Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together against the fort, again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th Of the month they rested and made it a day of fasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for these reminders that you are in control and that you are overruling and overpowering all things to work according to your purposes and that you're for us and not against us. And so, Lord, I pray that the text would speak to us this morning. We understand what it's saying and what you're saying to us, what it says and what what we would uh, understand what's happening here. But just as importantly, Lord, it would transfer to our lives and we'd see how it speaks to us today. So give us ears to hear and a heart to respond. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the chapter opens, it opens with this date stamp here. The 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day that these things begin to unfold. And at first reading, if you're at all like me, sometimes we can just gloss over dates like this uh, because we don't really have a reference point for them. They don't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, handles for us to grab on and find meaning to them. But if we do that, I think we're going to miss some of what God wants us to see, especially here in Esther as these dates are repeated there. They're put there on purpose. They're here for a reason. And I pointed some of these dates out the last time I got to fill in for Lucas But at the risk of repetition, I'll mention some of them again. Just to take us back across Esther, the story starts in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, according to chapter 1, verse 3. It's four years later that Esther is chosen as queen to fill the spot left vacant 
when Vashti was removed. So four years pass, and again, that's easy to miss just as you move from one chapter to the next. She's queen for about four years before Haman rises to prominence and puts his plan into motion. And again, as you're just reading the text, these things feel like they're just in rapid succession to one another, but we see immediately there's at least eight years from the beginning of the book on into chapter three. The initial decree to kill all the Jews was sent out on the 12th year and the first month, according to Esther chapter 3, verse 7. And then last week, we saw the counter decree that Mordecai crafted went out on the 12th year, the third month, and now here we are on the actual day of conflict, the 12th year, 12th month, 13th day. And you can kind of see the span of time there. And I point this out, not just for, you know, historical, like, um, Bible scholar students to be stoked on a date, but to remind us that God has been at work the whole time. Perfectly and methodically, God has been at work. To the day, God has his plan unfolding right on time. He's unfolding and working out his sovereign plan to cover his people down to the very day. And I need reminders like this. I would imagine you do too. Because when it seems like things are going sideways in our lives, or maybe they're going under in our lives, it's easy to feel like God is late, isn't it? God, if you knew what was going on in my life, you would have shown up a couple months ago when this bill started coming due, or when this health thing started showing up, or when this arrangement began shifting. Lord, if you would have known and seen me, you would have been acting a long time ago. It's easy to feel like God is late. He's not paying attention. He doesn't realize the urgency of the situation. God isn't on the same time frame that I'm in. Or maybe it's just a a general dissatisfaction with our life that causes us to feel like God isn't on the time frame that we are. Why am I still in this job at this point in my life? Why am I still in this house when I fully expected that there'd be a different progression through my story? How come I'm not married yet? How come I don't have kids yet? How come I'm only at this place in my career? And we begin to think, God, you're not paying attention. You're not following the timetable that we set up. And it's really easy to begin to think that God is behind schedule, unaware that the clock is ticking And that things should be done differently other than what they are right now. And so I need reminders like this from the book of Esther to say, God, you see. To be reminded that God is never late. That he knows the year, the month, the day, the hour perfectly. I love it what it said of Jesus that when the fullness of time came, that God brought his son into the world. It was the exact right time for God to act. And so you and I can be at rest that God is in control. He's not going to be late in your life. You see that his deliverance didn't come a day early before it was actually needed. It was right there at the right time. And so the day set out by this original decree, it arrives. It's now the 12th month, the 13th day. And the enemies of the Jews think it's going to be their day. The time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. And on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. As you look at this verse and kind of the the few verses here, it's worth pausing on the word enemies for a second. 
Because there have always been human enemies opposed to the Jews. You think about Pharaoh and the Egyptians back in Exodus. Think of the Philistines throughout so much of Israel's history. But more abiding than those folks and others is a spiritual enemy who has always been opposed to God and God's people. Satan is always opposed to all that God is doing and all that God is doing through his people. And every attempt that we see on the Jewish people is ultimately an expression of Satan's desire to oppose God's plans and to destroy humanity. This is not just some random ethnic conflict that's happening here. There's a very real malignant spiritual entity behind these things. And we see this again at the end of the verse where the enemies of the Jews are described as those who hated them. This initial decree that Haman crafted and sent out, it wasn't just some random piece of legislation that he passed through, just a knee-jerk reaction that he had to Mordecai not bowing down. This came out of a deep-seated hatred. And there were within the Persian Empire people who hated the Jews. When this decree, initial decree comes out, this was exactly the type of thing that they had been waiting for, a reason, an opportunity, and an excuse to act on their hatred towards God's people. And we see that the enemy of God, Satan, has been stirring up enemies for God's people, fomenting that hatred towards them. But then God does what he does. We see that the Jews overpowered those who meant to overpower them. He took the evil meant against Israel and he turns it on its head. And I tell you, gang, this is one of God's specialties. This is one of God's trademark moves, the ability to transform what is broken and wrong and make it good. He is able to take what the enemy means for evil and to transform it for our good and for his purposes. God is able to his glory to redeem and make useful everything that this broken world and an enemy can throw at us. Now sometimes you and I see his redemptive work in near relation to the trial. It's right after we lose our job that another job opens and it's perfect provision for us. Lord, if I hadn't been sacked from that one, I never would have been looking for another job. I never would have found your provision. And God's provision comes bang right after the trial. And there are other times where the trial ends And we're left scratching our heads wondering, what in the world was that about? How is God going to redeem that? And we don't see his redemptive work in full until we get into heaven and we see with perfect clarity and hindsight. But know this, whether it's in near relation or it's not until heaven, God will not be defeated in anything. God is not going to let a trial have the last word over him. He's not going to let the brokenness of this world trump him and overrule him. Nothing will prevent God from working all things for his glory and for our benefit. We certainly see this in his dealings with Israel, don't we? God will not allow his people to be overcome or his promises to them to be broken. In Jeremiah, God says, you, can better have, you have a better chance of breaking the cycle of day and night than you have a chance of breaking my word to Israel. And those who come against Israel are actually coming against the apple of God's eye. 
And God doesn't take too well to being poked in the eye. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Those who touch Israel touch the apple of God's eye. And the enemies of God's people meant to come in like a flood. And God raises up a standard against them. And God allows his people to overpower those who meant to overpower them. As we keep moving into verse 2, the Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. So the decree that Mordecai drafted in the previous chapter said that the Jews were permitted to gather together to protect their lives. They were given permission to kind of gather together as a militia, as a military force. And that's exactly what we see them doing here in our text this morning. All over the Persian Empire, wherever the Jews had been scattered, they gathered together, finding strength together. What a good reminder this is, isn't it? As they gathered together, they found strength. You know, I was talking to someone Friday, and as we were having, going through our conversation, I was reminded of the importance of fighting our battles together instead of fighting alone. In my life, victory against sin, help through discouragement, help through seasons where I've got questions, has always been the most effective when others come alongside me. Because we simply were not made to fight alone. From the beginning, when God looked at Adam, what did he say about Adam? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. Hey, Adam, this is great. Creation is wonderful, but you're missing something here. And he didn't make Eve to live in one part of the garden while Adam was over here. Two people, but separate and distinct, he made them to be together. We're made for community. We're made for one another. We're made to be in partnership with one another. And so let me just ask this morning, what are you fighting right now? What are you fighting against struggling through? Is there some sort of depression in your life, a battle against sin perhaps? Maybe it's a struggle to find God's will in a time that you're in, a certain season that you're in. Maybe it's singleness or some different difficulty at work and you're just wondering, Lord, what is your will in this season? Maybe it's just a constant uphill battle of parenting and it's just taking an extra toll for some reason right now. What are you fighting right now? What are you waging war towards and against? And importantly, who have you brought alongside you in that fight? Who have you brought alongside you to help fight with you? Sadly, our instinct is to go it alone, isn't it? Maybe we, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to, they've got their thing and I don't want to be a burden to them. Maybe we feel embarrassed. I don't really want to let anybody know that I'm struggling with this or that I'm having a difficult time with this. They've all got it put together, right? Because we all do, everybody here in this room except for the one person. No, that's not the truth. Pridefully, we don't want to appear incapable of handling our own business, so we don't bring others in. I, I, I should be strong enough to take care of this. And so we fight on in isolation. 
And when we do that, we're playing right into the enemy's plans to pick off from the herd a roaring lion seeking those he may devour, trying to find someone to separate from the herd and pick off in isolation. We never fight well when we fight in isolation. I'll just say that again. We never fight well when we're fighting in isolation. And so let's call people into our lives. But so thankful to see the men's ministry spinning back up and that opportunity, not spinning back up as if it wasn't there to begin with, but taking into that new season where guys are able to call into one another. I'm so thankful to see women's ministry has been doing that faithfully for so much time to spend calling together, gathering together, calling people into our lives. Sprouts, there's so many opportunities for us to invest in one another. So call people into your life. Call them to gather with you like we see the Jews doing here so that the things that threaten to overpower you can be overpowered as God works on your behalf. And that's the real secret, isn't it? Yes, there is strength in numbers. Like Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one. But the real strength isn't us. It's God working on our behalf. As we see here in the chapter, yes, the Jews banded together, they fought united, but it wasn't their tactical prowess, it wasn't their gathered numbers that won the day, it was that God was moving on their behalf in this season. And as you notice in verses 2 through 4, that a fear of the Jews comes upon the general population throughout the, uh, the Persian Empire. This fear kind of settles into the hearts of those who are opposed to them. And while that's happening at kind of the grassroots general population layer, a fear of Mordecai is settling over the political leadership. And so you have these layers that just the grassroots, the ordinary citizen of the Persian Empire has this kind of deep-seated fear of the Jews in their hearts, while the political leadership that had been so aligned against the Jews is now finding theirs a fear of Mordecai in their hearts, and so they're motivated to act. And as God is standing in defense of and fighting for his people, we see that the effects of this were felt on the street level and in the places of power. At a grassroots level and at the places of government, he brings fear into the hearts of those who oppose the Jews. God was fighting for his people, shifting the balance of the battle before it even began. And as you look back across the Old Testament, God has promised that he would do something like this for his people. He promised that the Jews would know courage or fear in direct correlation to how they were following him. As they followed him, they would know courage in battle. And as they approached a battle, rather than being fearful of defeat, they would have this built-in innate sense of confidence that God was fighting for them. And their enemies would know fear and the, the, the scale would be tipped in their favor before the battle even began. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. So God would bring fear of the Jewish people and make them successful in battle as they followed him. And we see an example of this 
when the Israelites went into the promised land, remember under the leadership of Joshua, they're approaching Jericho. God gave a fear of Israel to the people who occupied the land. And Rahab makes this observation. She says in Joshua 2 verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And so when we read about fear filling the hearts of those who are enemies of the Jews here in Esther 9, it's not just some random thing where they saw them gathered in strength and it was just kind of like, boy, we hadn't expected this type of response. This is God sovereignly working to fulfill his promises and fight on behalf of his people. God was fighting on behalf of his people and it's evidenced by this shift of fear within the dynamic. Remember, when Haman's decree went out, Fear and grief filled the hearts of the Israelites. Fear for their lives, reasonably. Grief over what had been just declared over them. We see fear warring within Esther's heart as she considers approaching the king without an invitation and understand the implications of that. But now the tide of fear has shifted. That ball has rolled to the other side of the equation and now fear fills the heart of the enemies of God. And it's worth noting this, because it's amazing how much fear can shape our thinking and behavior, isn't it? It's sad how much of just our normal behavior throughout life is actually shaped by fear. Rahab, remember, had said that fear drained the strength and resolve from the inhabitants of the land. Fear almost kept Esther from approaching the king to intercede on behalf of her people. And how often do I let fear keep me back from the good things that God wants to do in me and through me? I fear he won't come through in my finances. So I take matters into my own hands and create my own solution. And so rather than seeing God move, I just worked harder. Remember, Abraham and Sarah feared that God wouldn't keep his promise for a son. And so they took matters into their own hands. And so rather than seeing the son of promise, they created a whole rat's nest of mess by taking things into their own hands. Fear keeps us back from confessing sin and moving into the light. I can't do this. Things will get worse if I come out about this, if I make people know what's going on to my life. It just can't be better. And so we keep our sin hidden. We stay in darkness. Fear keeps us from living fully for Jesus at work or in front of a family member, in the classroom, whatever setting it might be. Fear keeps us from standing up as we ought to. And so in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus, knowing this, he teaches his disciples an important lesson about fear and his ability to overpower the things that make them afraid. And it's probably a story you're familiar with, but I think it's actually worth reading for ourselves. So rather than putting it up as a slide, why don't you guys turn over to Matthew chapter 8. Obviously, we'll come back to uh, Esther 9, so I don't know if you want to keep a finger there or just mark it. But turn over with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll skip down to verse 23 together. Again, it's probably a story you're familiar with, but in studying, I just felt like it would be so worth our time to see these things and actually chew on them together. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. 
We are perishing. But he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Jesus corrects their little faith, their small faith. He corrects their, for them for letting fear overpower their confidence in him. The strong emotion of fear pushed out the clear thinking and understanding that Jesus was there with them and whatever might come into their path, God had it in control. Fear pushed that clear thinking out of their minds. And then I love how Jesus demonstrates his power over the thing that causes them fear. He calms the wind and the waves. He was Lord over even the things that frightened them. The wind and the waves were subject to him. I don't know what's causing you fear right now, but I do know that God is over that thing or those things. And I can't say how he'll deal with it, I can't say that he'll calm it like he does here or if he'll say no like he did to Paul and ride through the storm with you, but I can say that God is over those things. The thing that causes us to fear, it's our finances, it's our health, it's the state of our kids, it's the prospect of what our future looks like, those things that make us afraid, God is over those things. He's not overpowered by them. And I love that Jesus takes the thing that was completely, uh, the, the disciples had no ability to act on the weather. They had no ability to shape the storm. The sea that they had made their living on, they had no power to actually control. And Jesus, with a word, calms it all, demonstrating his control over what it was out of control for the disciples. There's a lot of stuff out of control in our lives. We don't have control over maybe a health situation. We don't have control over how the boss is setting our schedule or working in our lives. We don't have control over the cost of our rent or the cost of power or whatever it is. God is in control. And he's not put out by the things that frighten us. And I felt it was so important to actually see Jesus speaking his power over these things, to be reminded that he speaks his power over the stuff that frightens us. I know God will not be overpowered by the thing that uh, feels like it's going to overpower you. He will not be defeated in anything. Nothing will prevent him from working all things for his glory and for your benefit. So as we go back to Esther, let's believe God instead of our fears. Let's push back the voice of our fears by filling our hearts with the word of God, letting his voice be the one that we listen to. Wiley and I were actually reading this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible together, and there is the author kind of repurposes and kind of rephrases the story. Jesus asked the disciples, did you believe your fears instead of me? And boy, that book just like, boom, right to the heart. Lord, I often believe the voice of my fears instead of listening to your voice. Let's push back the voice of our fears by filling our hearts and minds with the word of God and letting his voice be the voice that we hear. And so there was fear. We see the balance shifting from fear within the heart of God's people to the fear within the heart of the enemies that were opposed to them. God is shifting the balance in favor of his people. And we read then in verse 5, 
that thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. So they gather together, the Jews do, across the Persian Empire, and they defeat their enemies. Those who had thought to overpower them were overpowered instead. And at the end of verse 5, we read that the Jews did what they pleased with those who hated them. It's kind of an interesting phrase because this isn't revenge run amok. This is actually another inversion of Haman's original plan. We actually saw this for the first time back in chapter 8 when Mordecai's counter order said that the Jews could kill, annihilate, and destroy any force that attacked them. And those three verbs were not just randomly chosen. They're the exact three verbs that Haman used in the original decree back in chapter 3. It was all completely reversed. Well, in that same chapter, chapter 8, or chapter 3 rather, Ahasuerus tells Haman that he can do what seems good to him while annihilating the Jews. He can do as he pleases. And so when the Jews do what they please, Here in verse 5, it's an inversion of the evil that was meant against them. God is completely undoing the evil the enemy meant to bring across the Jewish people. And again, what a glorious and good father we have. A father who can take the evil meant against us and turn it for his good. Classically in the New Testament, Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. Back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph told his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. These are powerful truths, aren't they? Now, it can be hard to believe them at times. I I certainly admit that. It's hard for me to believe that at times, and I'm the one teaching this morning. They can even sound hollow and worn out when we hear them, but that doesn't make them any less true. Just because you've heard Romans 8, 28 a million times or heard Genesis 50, verse 20 quoted a million times doesn't mean it's not true. The book of Esther is an over 5,000 word reminder that God is at work reversing the evil and brokenness that comes into our lives. He's overpowering the things that mean to overpower us. Now, I'll admit, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to ask, well, how? I mean, it's a great idea, broadly speaking, but how is God turning all things to good? How is God overpowering these things? What good is God bringing about in our lives? Well, I can't say exactly. So good question. No, I'm kidding. We'll talk about it. Let me mention a few. I I genuinely can't say everything that God is doing in your life. That'd be silly of me to say, here's the full list. This is only the list, and that's all it contains. That would be silly. But we can say with certainty a few of the things that God is doing as we see it revealed in scriptures. To continue the quote in Romans chapter 8, Verses 29 and 30 say, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. 
I can say with certainty, one of the things that God is doing in your life as he overpowers the things that mean to overpower you is to conform you and to conform me to the image of Jesus. Now think back. In Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. We were made to bear the image of God, but through sin then and through our sin now, we've shattered that image. It's like we took the the vase, the, the clay creation that God made, and we threw it on the ground and it shattered to a million pieces. And now God is patiently and persistently reshaping us to how we were always meant to be. We only know life broken. We think it's normal that the clay pot is scattered all over the floor. That feels like normal because that's what we're born to. That's what we see around us. But God says, no, you were never meant to just be broken pieces, shattered all over. Let me put you back to the image you were meant to be. And he reshapes us to the image of Jesus. I don't think, in fact, I know we don't understand how beneficial this transformation is. Even reading it right now and seeing the quote in front of us, we're probably a bit underwhelmed because we don't realize how good it is, how important it is, and how needed it is that we would be reshaped to the image of Jesus. We don't understand the extent of our brokenness. It feels normal to us, and we don't realize how broken we are. On the other hand, we don't realize the extent of God's glory, just how good Jesus is. And so because we don't know this end or this end of the spectrum, we don't realize how much the gap is there. We don't realize how good it is that God is working all things together for the specific good of conforming us to the image of Jesus. And I pray little by little God would help us see the surpassing value of being shaped back into the image of Jesus. It's one of the goods that I can say God is doing in your life through difficulties and through trials. Another good that we can know for sure is that God is working an experience of his comfort into our lives, which allows us then to extend that comfort to others. This you could mark down if you're taking notes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul talks about the comfort that he received. He was then able to pass along to others. I was thinking about this on Friday. How many of the difficult things that I've walked through, God has been then able to use that as encouragements to others. I'm so thankful that I have a chance to sit down in my office and talk about stuff that I've gone through and say, if God can be faithful in my life through this, he can be faithful as you walk through what you're going through. And I certainly haven't experienced the gamut of human suffering. There's so much I haven't gone through. But what I have experienced God is able to transform all of it and make it useful as I can comfort others as they're walking through their stuff. The comfort I've received from the Lord, I'm able to pass along. The comfort I've received from God. And this gets to a redemptive work, another thing that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 3. A famous, another famous passage where Paul speaks of counting all things rubbish in order to gain Jesus. The value of gaining Jesus was so far superior to everything else that Paul says the rest is just like a bin full of garbage. And so Paul said, I would rather set aside every advantage I've ever had in life that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Knowing Jesus in the fellowship of suffering 
How many of us here are shouting, amen, bring on the suffering. There's not a lot. The room's crickets at this moment. But I tell you, there's something there, and there's something good there. And it hints at one of the good things that God does as he works through difficulties. I won't know Jesus as my provider if I'm never poor, right? If I'm never above or rather underwater with my finances, I'll never know Jesus' hands reaching down and providing in my finances. I won't know Jesus as my counselor if I never feel confused and at a loss. If I've always got it figured out and straightened out, why do I need to know him as wonderful counselor? If I never sick, I'll never experience Jesus as healer. I won't know him as the Prince of Peace unless I experience fear and anxiety. I won't know his comfort unless I feel loss. And we could keep going with this list on and on and on, but you get the idea. Sometimes it is suffering that allows us to experience fellowship with Jesus and know parts of his character and nature that we wouldn't know in any other context. We gain a fuller picture of Jesus through the difficulties that we walk through. And honestly, we could really keep building this list on and on and on with the ways that God works all things together for our good. He refines and strengthens our faith. He uses temporary sufferings to create an eternal weight of glory. He protects us from sin. He sets up provision like he did through the life of Joseph. The list goes on and on and on with as much variety as there is difficulty in the human experience. I tell you, it's one of the understated ways that God is at work in our lives, redeeming the evil and brokenness that we experience in this world, making it work for our benefit and his glory. We don't always see how it's being worked out, but God is always at work. And we certainly are seeing that play out here in the book of Esther in very dramatic fashion. Those who hated and opposed the Jews were defeated in front of them. And then as we move verses 6 through 16, we're given two summaries. Most of it, verses 6 through 15, concern the the action that took place in Shushan. We read there in these verses that 500 men were killed as they came in opposition to the Jews, plus the 10 sons of Haman. And it's kind of an interesting thought, and it kind of goes back to the dates that we mentioned at the beginning of the study, that it seems that these 10 sons of Haman were unwilling to see the tide turn, and they continued to attempt to put out uh, and carry out their father's plans. Now remember, it's been about nine months since the counter-decree passed. Uh, It's been about nine months since their father Haman was killed. But in that intervening nine months, they haven't changed their mind. And so when people go out to kill the Jews, they're in that crowd, And they're the ones bumping up against the gathered forces of the Jewish people. Time didn't change their minds. Seeing their father's death didn't serve as a warning to them. Despite all these things, they double down on their resolve, they harden their hearts, they grab hold of their hatred, and they push on with this plan. And boy, it's certainly not a main point of today's study, but even as I was writing that in my notes, what a warning against hardening our hearts, right? and refusing to bend to God's work, to bow to the things that he's doing in our lives, I look at these 10 guys and I think, what in the last nine months did not click with you? Like, how did, this not, how did you not see that the, the thing was shifting? 
Even their mom said, look, if, if Mordecai is a Jew, your whole plan's down the tubes. And for some reason, rather than seeing the death of their father and this counter-decree going out, these guys doubled down on their resolve to stay the course. And how many times have I been so silly to see God's will and to know his plan, but to double down on my sin or to stay in this place where I'm not going to do what you call me to do? How many times have I been Jonah when God says, you need to go this way? And I say, no, I'm going that way. I can't point the finger at them without being honest about what's happening in my own life. I don't want to. We don't want to be people who train our hearts to say no to God. So it gets easier and easier to push down his voice and silence the work of the Holy Spirit. We want people who are soft, who remain open to his prompting and leading, where he could direct us with just a glance of his eye, not needing the bit and the bridle. Well, again, that's not the main point of what I wanted to cover this morning, but it it was convicting enough to me. I was like, you guys need that too. So everybody gets a dose. As the king checks with Esther on the results of the fighting, he gives and extends another day for the Jews in Shushan to do another day of battle. Um, He has Haman's sons put on the gallows, their bodies serving as a warning to others. This was not an uncommon practice at this time, not only to have them killed, but then to their bodies to be displayed as a very physical warning. That We see an extension of this in crucifixion. Crucifixion was a public demonstration intended not just to punish the individual on the cross, but to be a warning, and that's what's happening here. Again, the second day, another 300 are killed in Shushan. Perhaps it's been people holding out, maybe for a more opportune time. We're not really uh, explained where these extra 300 came from. And then verse 16 gives us the summary for the rest of the empire, where we read that 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed. And that's not an insignificant number. I don't want to minimize that in any way. But just to, a little bit of perspective, given that there are 127 provinces at this time in the Persian Empire, that averages out to about 590 per province. And again, I don't mean to minimize the number. It's still a significant loss. It's a significant uh, event for sure. These people opposed to God and his people, and so uh, this, this counterattack that takes place. But one of the things I want to just note as kind of looking at the text and not missing a few things, you'll notice a repeated phrase in verses 10, 15, and 16 where it says that the Jews did not lay a hand on the plunder. Uh, The counter decree given in chapter 8, verse 11, it gave the Jews permission to take possession of those who opposed them. So as they went out on the attack, as they defended themselves, those houses and households that were defeated... The decree said, you can take that stuff. It's all yours. But what we see here is that they didn't uh, follow through on that. They didn't take advantage of that part of the decree. And really, it lets us know that the Jews were only intent on defending themselves, not pressing the advantage. They defended themselves, but they weren't interested in wanton slaughter and just taking um, all that they could for themselves. They defended themselves against their enemies, but they didn't press the attack and then just kind of Rub it in, if you will. And then in verses 17 through 19, we have kind of the summary afterwards. It says, This was on the 13th day of the month, the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Uh, We see the same phrase repeated again in verse 18 that it's a day of feasting and gladness. And then again in verse 19. 
gladness, feasting, a holiday, and even sending presents to one another. I love this. We come to our last verses this morning with the battle behind them, with God's deliverance fresh in their minds, they do the only reasonable thing they celebrate, right? How much is it when we see God's deliverance in our lives that our response is, Lord, you are so good. An unanticipated check comes in the mail and, oh, Lord, I I just didn't see this coming. God, you're so good. A health report comes back. Are you kidding me? I can't believe this. Or he pulls us through some difficult season and we see we're not in the fire like we used to be. Lord, you're so good to carry me through the difficulty of that time. They celebrated. They soaked in God's goodness. There was gladness. They just said, we're going to sit here for a moment and not blow past what God has done. We're going to rejoice in this. They enjoy these generous meals with one another So much of of Esther has included mentions of feasts, and here we see a feast being used in its best way to, again, celebrate what God had done. They give gifts to one another, and they celebrate the way that God overpowered the evil that was meant against them. And I hope we do that too. You and I may not observe the Feast of Purim, but we have our own deliverance to celebrate, right? How many stories... Do we have, if we just sat around in the room and just rehearsed how God has been good to us? At a minimum, we have the opportunity every Sunday to gather and remember the way that God overpowered sin and death to bring about life and forgiveness. Every Sunday. It's not just a day to throw away and just do our normal Sunday thing. This is an opportunity to celebrate the deliverance that God has brought to our lives. We can remember and celebrate the way that God has overpowered death and darkness. Again, I mentioned thinking about these things on Friday in that conversation with that gentleman. And even within the quietness of my own thoughts, I remember thinking, God, you are so good to redeem the difficult things that I've walked through. Things I felt so troubling at the time I was going through them. Lord, I thank you for making that useful, for not allowing it to go to waste. I don't know the whole story. I don't even know my own whole story. I don't understand everything. I don't have answers to all my questions. But the book of Esther reminds me that God is at work. He's overpowering the things that threaten to overpower me. And as we wrap up this morning, God is doing the same thing in you and for you. I just love this phrase that God overpowered the things that were threatening to overpower them. And he's certainly doing that in our lives today. Let's close and pray this morning. Have the worship team come back up and lead us in a last song. Father, thank you so much that you will not be overpowered by anything. Nothing will have the last say over you. Nothing holds your hands behind your back and renders you powerless. Nothing can keep you away from the people that you're working in. And God, I just want to say thank you so much that we can have such confidence that you are at work in our lives and around our lives. Lord, I want to pray for us as a church family that we would know this deep into who we are, whether we're struggling with fear, we're struggling with confusion, Whatever it is that we're wrestling through, we pray that like the disciples, we would in wonder see you speaking to the things that are overpowering us. 
see that you're in control over the things that are out of control for us. Lord, settle these things into our hearts and minds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.